C.H. Spurgeon commenting on happiness and Christianity once said, happier to be chained in a dungeon with Paul than reign in the palace with an Ahab. And I, I think, in other words, as we, as Christians, we, we gauge the good life differently than unbelievers. Jonathan Edwards reminds us the enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. You put the statement of Spurgeon and Edwards together and you have 1 Peter 3, 8 through 12. Or like Paul said in 1 Timothy 6, 17, God who richly supplies us with all things or with everything to enjoy. Now think about that. Sometimes I think we get it backwards. Our problem is not that we have things and enjoy them. Our problem is that we covet them. It's not that we, I mean, he's given us, he says here, he richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. First Timothy 6. So why don't we? Because of sin. And there, right there, demonstrates and shows us our need for Christ. Now to see all of what I just said, open your Bible to 1 Peter 3. And let's read verses 8 through 12 as we put them before us. And let's give attention to the voice of God. To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is is against those who do evil. Now you remember the controlling thought here of this passage as we're studying it is right here in verse 10. So look at verse 10 again and remind yourself and see it. The one who desires life to love and see good days. That is a quote from Psalm 34. And I, I can't help but bringing up a, that, a tremendous verse from that very psalm. And he's quoting that psalm because it fits the context of what he's saying. I believe Peter has this whole psalm in mind from 1 Peter 2 verses 11 all the way to 1 Peter 3, 12. The whole thing I believe he has Psalm 34 in mind. But listen 
in particular to Psalm 34, verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is what? Good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And in that, we are invited to do something. Have you ever wondered why the Lord gave us a tongue and a palate? Don't ever forget, he's also giving you teeth to close that thing up, right? Sometimes our tongues get a little bit too carried away. Could it be that we might enjoy the experiences of taste? Sure, but don't end there. So that enjoying, in enjoying the experience of taste, we might be reminded the Lord is sweeter. But the Lord is greater than that. You ever have that experience? I have. You know, you go to some place... And you eat and you think, oh, you know, you just sit there, you go, I'm really just hoping that, you know, I don't move from here for a while because this is amazing, right? Or, you know, or maybe you pray, Lord, if this is the time for you to take me, I'm good right now. This was amazing. All of that was just meant for us to be able to get in tune with the sweetness of the Lord. Now, having said that, this whole psalm is about all the trials and suffering and experiences in Psalm 34 for David that tried to take away that taste from the mouth of his life. David says through the Lord, taste and see that he is good even in the days where you suffer and you are unfairly treated. In other words, there is a good life that God has designed for us to experience even in our sufferings. That we might taste and see His goodness even in our sufferings. Even in the middle of unfair treatment against us from this world, He has designed it for us to taste and see just how good He is. Peter quotes Psalm 34, 12 through 16 here, but what I believe he does is borrow David's context and makes a parallel to the situation that these believers are in that he writes to. And what Peter wants us to do is learn how to live the good life. Not only how to live it, how to love it. He uses a Greek term here, uh, thelon, uh, thelos from which means to wish, to desire something strongly, to wish for something to be true and to happen. We would wish and will for the good life, to love that good life, to see good days in living this life. Now, everybody wants that. I mean... Who doesn't want that? We showed you that last week from Solomon's life. I mean, he wanted it. And I tell you, the reason why Solomon is such an important 
illustration and example is because he didn't have any limitations in his life. None. None. I mean, you can point to, there are plenty of poor people that we could point to throughout the scriptures. We could point to people that were, you know, not the smartest, you know. You could point to people like Mephibosheth who, who had a handicap and he, you know, he couldn't get around easily. And you could point to people that were menial fishermen and so forth. You could point to people that were servants. Solomon was none of those things. He had, I guess what you could say in the world's eyes, he had it all. Perfect health. Wisdom. Strength. Charming, I'm sure. He had to be. He wrote Song of Solomon. Okay. This is a guy who had wealth. Who was the king? He was not a servant. He was the king. He had no limits to his resources and what he could get with all his wisdom and with all his wealth. And so I believe there classifies nobody greater or of a higher superior voice on the subject of satisfaction, on the subject of the good life. And as I said, I mean, everyone is pursuing the good life. Not only wants it, but actually pursues it. And in understanding what the good life is that everyone in this world pursues, we need to remind ourselves that it is from the system that runs this world. Today, you see people just indulging in everything that you can indulge in. And you could say it this way, sin is the good life. That's how the world sees it, that sin is the good life. That's what the world is advertising to you, by the way. And it tries to couch it, and it tries to really make it look like it's not, that sin is not exactly sin. That lies can be white. And that morality can be gray. God has the boundary lines and it is Satan's lie all over again from Genesis 3. Has God said? Satan told Eve, hey, God is holding back from you. He's strict. He's unbending. He's keeping back the good life from you. And so the good life is then getting outside of the boundary lines that God has set up. This is what the world wants us to to see and to agree with and to understand. And so whatever God says is good regarding sex and whatever God says is good regarding... uh, romance that way the world says 
go outside of that. You got to really get outside of that if you're gonna if you're gonna get the good life. He's holding he's holding you back from something over there. It's 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 good over there, over there. Go over there just a little bit. It may be for some of you who have a you know not a wild propensity, but just a little. To you, maybe the the message is you don't have to go way over there, just a little over there. In fact, do you remember what triggered Eve? When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, not was a source for food. Do you see that? When the woman saw that goodness was there, that the good life was there, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. You see all that Satan had to do to get her on his side? Just convince her that God's boundaries kept her from tasting the good stuff. Convince her that outside the camp there is good food, good stuff to eat and taste, and every person has bought Satan's lie to this very day. He started it, and he just keeps perpetuating it. And it goes. It has mileage. As somebody once said, Satan is one of the greatest preachers. And he has preached every age. And he's got millions and millions of preachers that carry out his message. Addictions are through the roof. You have people involved in all kinds of sexual sin. You have men indulging their appetites in every conceivable direction from pornography to fornication to adultery. You have women that use their bodies as power over men, women that make money off of that and have empowered themselves by it. And it is like Romans 1 is just the floodgates of it where it talks about them being inventors of evil. It's just, it's here. People throwing down alcohol and weed and drugs and consuming and indulging because they think, taste and see that this world is good. That's Satan's light Eve. It hasn't changed. And you know what? And we're consumers. And here comes Peter, and he takes that precious psalm that says, taste and see that the Lord is good, and says, hey, don't let all the abuse from the world make you miss out on the true good life that Jesus wants you to taste and see.
That's, that's his message. Can I just remind you that the good life that the world drinks up, it does make them feel happy. It does. Now, it doesn't last. There's a certain buzz in there. There's a certain appeal to the flesh that really hits the spot. And they call it the good life. And I believe they really are having a good time. And in fact, John 3 tells us they love it. The world doesn't tolerate its sin. They love it. You know, Solomon thought he would love it too. We saw that last week as we make this connection of, from Eve to Solomon. Solomon was just a sophisticated version of Eve. Ecclesiastes 2, Solomon tried all kinds of stuff, sex, alcohol, recreation, materialism, competition, music, education. None of it made him believe he had the good life. You say, did he, did he ever figure it out, though? Because remember, he said in chapter 2, verse 17 of Ecclesiastes, so I hated life. I hated it. I, experienced, I got it all. I had no limitations to the resources. I went bonkers, and I just... I, I, Tried to satisfy myself to the hill, and I hated life. That was my conclusion. Did he ever figure it out? Yes, listen to the end of Ecclesiastes. Chapter 12, verse 1. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near, when you will say, I have no delight in them. He says, learn this while you're young. Learn this while you're young. Oh, the foolishness that we thought when we were young. How impervious we thought we were to things. And how different we thought we would be than all other people who ruined their lives. Oh, we saw that they ruined their lives. We read the history books. We knew about it. We convinced ourselves that history would not repeat itself. We're different, we said. Solomon says, learn this while young. Learn just what the good life is now before you have to waste your life. And then, for most, it's too late. Verse 6 of Ecclesiastes 12. Remember him before the silver cord is broken. And the golden bowl is crushed. It's just a picturesque way of saying you've reached the, the aged years and it's done. It's too late. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was and the spirit will, will return to God who gave it. In other words, you'll get old, everything will break down, including you, and you'll see that it was all just a waste. And then verse 13. Ecclesiastes 12, 13. The conclusion, when all has been heard, is this. Fear God and keep His commandments. Because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. 
What kind of person can fear God and keep his commandments? A born again one. A redeemed one. One who belongs to Jesus Christ. That's the good life. And you don't even see it or know it or agree with that conclusion until your spiritual eyes are opened. So Solomon came to the conclusion, life is empty. Twice he says, remember God. Remember that God is the key to the good life. And so here is Peter, and he understands that, and he knows about Solomon, and here he is, and he knows about David, and and he takes Psalm 34, and, and here he is writing to Christians who are being unfairly treated, and he says, what can I encourage them with from God's word? Psalm 34. How can I help them see that God still wants them to experience the good life, even facing persecution and insults and abuse? Psalm 34. Here they are living in an aggressively hostile community, hostile to evangelical Christianity, to biblical-based Christianity. In chapter 1, verse 1, he calls them aliens. In chapter 2, verse 11, strangers in a community they don't belong to. And so I think it's a really good question when we say, can life be good? Can life be good? Can you find the good life in Fallon? Yes. But you have to know how. You've got to know how to get the good life. Peter says three ways. Here we go. First, with the right approach. And the right approach starts with your attitude. And that's verse 8. Listen, it's not about your circumstances changing. Boy, we've deceived ourselves. If only I had different circumstances, then my life would be good. It's not about where you live. It's not about where you live. It's amazing how many people I talk to, including myself when I was younger. Well, I said, if I, you know, if I just, if I, this, this one place, I just find the place. I say, well, you know what? I've talked to people that live in that other city and I found out there's sinners over there too that do sinful things. If only we could live in a cool place that has lots of cool opportunities. It's not about that. It's not about job opportunities. It's not about your health. It's not about your popularity. It's about your attitude. The good life starts there about your attitude. Boy, what a difference it is when the attitude changes, right? Isn't that amazing? Put two people in the same place, in the same situation, and one person has one view of it and the other person the other view. One is negative and the other positive. How? How'd you get there? Attitude. So what is it? What is that attitude? He tells us, verse 8, be harmonious, sympathetic, 
brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. It starts there. And notice that type of stuff. All of what he just said is very internal. Internal stuff that kind of has to make it, it has to make its way out. And the other thing too is you can't just make yourself those things. Those things flow, flow out of a born again nature. They flow from a person with new life in Christ, you see. So here you have a person in the world and he's not of it and he's getting blasted by it. He's suffering and you approach an unbelieving community that way. You approach a workplace filled with unbelievers that way. You approach a marriage with a difficult or unbelieving spouse that way. And you get your attitude in this direction. But we're not done. You have to respond. You have to have an answer to the unfair treatment. And so point number two, you have to have the right answer. How do you answer unfair treatment? With forgiveness and not retaliation. Look at verse 9. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose you might inherit a blessing. All right, first, check your attitude. Second, don't retaliate. Don't do that. And you remember we showed you from all over Scripture that that's Christian living. Christian living is constantly being at a place where you just forgive people. Or you're willing to forgive. You say, well, that that person hasn't come to me or anything. I mean... Yet, but you know, they kind of weren't. They kind of were jerky to me. So, all right, I got to go find them out. Maybe, maybe not. But when they come to you, will you be willing to forgive them? See, I'm not sure. They've done 69 things that I can think of. Well, good for you. They know that Jesus said. Forgive him 70 times 7. See? So we're all right. Again, he wasn't trying to make a number deal, right? Forgiveness. Don't retaliate. Now let me give you a, a few passages to kind of drive this home. Proverbs twenty four twenty nine. Now I've given you some other passages. Last time, but these, these are going to be some new ones. Proverbs twenty four twenty nine. Do not say, thus I shall do to him as he has done to me. I will render to the man according to his work. Huh. This is interesting to me. He has to tell us. He has to tell us not to do this. Because he knows that's in us, right? It's in us to do this. Isn't that interesting? He has to tell us, don't say, thus I shall do to him as he has done to me. Because he knows that's what you want to do. That's where we want to live. We've all been there. Oh, you crossed my line. Well, listen, I've got something for you. And we usually kind of, you know, wag the head that way, kind of sway it that way. All right, here we go, you know. 
We want that to be our answer to the unfair treatment. Peter says, no, you need to be like Jesus in your answer. Now, what was Jesus like? First Peter 2, 23, 24, 25. He uttered no threat. He didn't revile when they reviled him. He said no word. So there's that passage, Proverbs 24, 29. Let me give you another one in the Old Testament that will sound very familiar to you. But here's the deal. It's going to sound familiar to you, but you may be, when you memorize this one, you didn't memorize the first part of it. And you might not have realized that it's a text that is tied to vengeance. Leviticus 19, verse 18. Remember this part? But you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. We say, yeah, that's right. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. That's the golden rule. Do unto others, right, as you want them to do to you. Okay. But listen to how the verse starts. You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. See, I think sometimes we live by the do unto others as they do to you. And you kind of do it on both sides. Well, you know, you say, say it on the positive end. Do unto others like you'd want them to do to you. And by the way, if somebody crosses me, do unto others like they've done to you, you know. Say, whoa, whoa, whoa. It's not what he says. He says, don't give in to vengeance. You shall not take vengeance. You cannot, you shall not bear a grudge. No grudge. Just love. In other words, love is tested when you are unfairly treated to the point where you feel that vengeance would be justified. He had to say that because he knows we get to places where we feel vengeance would be justified. In other words, where most of your system, most of your time is spent saying, oh no, no, vengeance is wrong, vengeance is wrong. Well, there is that one time. And then I would do it. The Lord says, no, it's not justified. I mean, the right answer when you want to bear a grudge is to love them. I mean, that's exactly what Peter says in 1 Peter 3, 9. So there's the right approach, the right answer. Last two points. Let's, let's look at these here as we bring this thing all together. Wrap it all up. You want the good life when you live in a world that treats you so unfairly? Thirdly, you got to come with the right authority. The right authority. What is that? The Word of God. You say, why go there? Well, I think that talking about the right authority here, the reason why Peter's doing this is because You start listening to the voices when people treat you unfairly, don't you? 
But the, but the voice you especially start listening to is yourself, right? People start treating you unfairly. You say to yourself, hey, this doesn't feel very good. This isn't right. I feel like this isn't right. I'm going to go talk to some people, see if I can get them on my side, and then figure out what I need to do. Instead of listening to yourself and others, you need to hear God's word. Maybe to say it a different way, you need to preach sermons to that voice inside of you that wants to retaliate. That's what this point is. You have to turn the tables on you. Natural you is going to go in the wrong direction. It's going to take you to places that you will regret. I wish I would have said that. I mean, I'm still not happy about the whole deal, but I wish I wouldn't have said that, right? How many times have you been to that place? You need a higher authority than yourself. The good life happens when you turn to the right authority. Now look at these two verses, and then I'm going to need to explain them. Uh, so, you, and what, Why I say that, I'm going to need to explain why they're here. I don't think they're going to be that tough to understand just looking at them, but you need to know why they're here. Peter says, For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. Now, Peter has just said a bunch of stuff from 2.13 to 3.7 that someone might say, Wait a minute. Is this what God teaches from the Old Testament? I mean, are you giving us a scriptural thought here? Is this a biblical thought? I mean, the Jewish thought has always leaned hard on an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, right? I mean, the Jewish thought has always been love to a point, and then you take matters into your own hands. Say, listen. I've dealt with this long enough. It's now time to say enough is enough. Peter says, well, okay, I can prove this thought from Scripture. And so he quotes Psalm 34, verses 12 through 16. But I really believe he has the whole psalm Peter brings the authority, his authority, he brings the Old Testament really as his authority to let them know you answer the right way and take the right approach because you're under the authority of the Word of God. I mean, you got the unreasonable guy just pushing you around with his words day after day, and maybe you might be tempted to think, is what you're telling me, Peter, in line with Scripture? And Peter's answer, 
yeah, this comes from God's Word. Now listen, beloved. This is very important. There's a lot of people questioning the teaching about submission as a biblical truth, for example. And we showed you submission was a theme from 2.13 to 3.7. And you can go back and look at it yourself. But Peter says, the authority for me to teach you that is the Bible. Now take a look at verse 10. The very first word is the word for. And that's a word that is more like because. So if you want to write somewhere because it's near there, then I think you'll be in the in the right place, in the right frame of understanding what he's saying. Now it connects reason to what verses 8 and 9 said. Do what I said because Scripture says so. That's the idea. So watch how this flows out. Peter says... Do what verse 8 and 9 says, because Scripture says this, you must keep your tongue from evil. Keep your lips from speaking deceit, Psalm 34. Don't let your mouth get you into trouble. That's what he says. How, How would our mouth get us into trouble? By pushing out words in an evil way, by speaking from deceit, where you make it seem like you are saying one thing, but you mean actually something different. And you do all of that to try to protect yourself. The word for to keep yourself means to cease from something, to stop doing something to stop that thing in its tracks. Put in a, an immediate closure to it. One of the ways we demonstrate we are people under the authority of God is with our mouth, right? Mark 7, Jesus said, he talked about how it's not you know, your surroundings or things you eat or anything that defiles you. It's it's what goes into the heart and then comes out of the mouth. That's what defiles you. And so we are to be a people under the authority of God, and we show that with our mouth, a redeemed mouth. Isaiah said in Isaiah 6, Woe is me, because I am a man of unclean lips, Surrounded by a people of unclean lips. In other words, if you want to know that we're all not right, take a look at our lips. <laughs> Listen to what the things that come out. How we talk. And you remember the angel touched his lips with the coal and made those lips clean. Psalm 15, 3. The person who walks in integrity He does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor. Psalm 39, verse 1, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth as with a muzzle while the wicked are in my presence. So he says, the psalmist, Psalm 39 says, okay, the wicked guy, 
the guy that's just a bad guy, he comes into the room, and I immediately grab, look for the muzzle. He's, he's going to put a muzzle on that guy's face? No, his own. His own. Because he knows, oh, man, that guy's coming. I just want to lay in. I want to, I want to say something. I just want to say something, right? You ever feel that way? You, you get up and get out of the room because you think, oh, no. I'm a, I'm a, I'm, I think I'm about to say something. That's what this is. Or how about Psalm 141, verse 3? Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. I like that. Set a guard. Go get, go get a, a soldier and station him in front of my mouth. Because, you know, I need that. Keep watch over the door of my lips. This is David saying, Lord, I don't trust my mouth. Put a guard over it. Make sure my lips aren't an open door of bad. That's the greatest influence for the transforming power of the gospel. A controlled mouth. Right? A controlled mouth. I will never forget. Um... I remember it just like it was yesterday. Um, the Lord had just saved me, and I was um, going into my senior year of high school, and I was playing football, and I was coming off the football field, this one particular practice, and I had my helmet and my arm, and and it just hit me. It would be probably because I had spent the whole practice doing the very opposite thing of what I should be doing. You know, not the cleanest language on a football field. I mean, um, I guess maybe there's a reason why football players play on dirt, you know, right? Because it's kind of like matches their mouth. Uh, but I remember thinking, I have the Holy Spirit in me, right? Isn't that what the Bible teaches? And when a person becomes a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. And I started to pray. Lord, I feel convicted about the words that I'm saying. Why do I say these words? Don't I have the power to not say these words? Yes. Well, then I'm not going to do that anymore because it doesn't please you. I don't know why it took me a while. I think I was saved for about, I don't know, three, four, five months or something. It took me a little while to make those types of connections because I was pretty slow. Um, a controlled mouth. Because I felt like my mouth made the rest of me look kind of yuck. So if only there could be control over the mouth. And there is for the, for the Christian. You go to the New Testament and that's James chapter 1 and, and James 3. Now James helps us understand why we need a guard over our lips. And remember this, James one twenty six: If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Boy, you know what a bridle is, right? That's that thing you put on the horse to kind of get the horse to in the mouth to get that horse to go where you need it to go. And so we need to have that same bridle, right? Can you just imagine that? People walking around with bridles over the muzzles, all the pictures that we're getting here this morning, right? He says... Uh, 
if you think you're this spiritual person and you don't bridle your tongue, you deceive your own heart. I mean, is, is it possible to deceive your own heart? It is. And he tells us how with your mouth. With your mouth. Later on in chapter 3 of James, he says, with our mouths we bless God and then we curse men. These two things ought not be. Shall from the same source of water come both springs of fresh and clean and good water and, and dirty water? In chapter 3 of James, verse 6, he says the tongue is set on fire by hell. And in verse 8, no man can tame it. It is a restless evil full of poison. Romans 3 tells us the evidence of our depravity is the poison of our tongue. So if we want to make a mark for the Lord, a mark of holiness, a mark of evangelism, a mark of love to others, in a marriage where you're maybe married to an unbeliever, in a job where you're surrounded by unbelievers, in a community of unbelievers, there has to be control of the mouth. And listen, that includes Facebook and Fallon 411. Okay? I mean, you know, oh, hey, listen, I didn't enjoy that experience in that restaurant. I'm just going to type a few things in here. Not something real mean, but you know. Verse 10, the idea of deceit has to do with lying. Stop covering up what you are really thinking. Stop retaliation. Turn the cheek. And then you get to verse 11, and it's very interesting. And again, Peter is quoting Psalm 34. And why it's interesting is he gives four imperatives, and that is four commands, and they're just boom, 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 boom. And we need to explain those four commands. Why does Peter bring Psalm 34 to this context with these four commands? Let's start with the first one. He must turn away from evil. Now, that's negative. The positive is do good, but, but you know what? What I love here? You've got to deal with the negative before you get to the positive. Sin always stands in the way of doing good. You've got to, you know, deal with the sin first. Now, the evil here he's talking about is the evil of talking about others. talking evil not only to others but about others it is answering another person's evil with your own version of evil and what he is saying is there has to be force against that it's a command there has to be force against that the second command is do good And so you put it together and we get this. The good life is churning away from the evil and doing the good. And in particular with our mouths. The world is backwards on this, right? The world says do the evil and you'll get the good life. Get outside of the boundaries and you'll find the good life. Do the good and you'll be inside the lanes but you're going to be there with no fun. 
and therefore it's not the good life. What's that sound like? We're back to Satan talking to Eve again. Now remember what the word good means. We went over this a couple of weeks ago. It's uh, agathos in the the Greek. And and this word means excellent. It's... uh, it can even be translated noble. Beauty. It even is a word that has to do with beauty. Its emphasis is on the quality of a thing. Do quality things, things of excellence. And then the third command seek peace. He says, be a peacemaker. The Greek word for seek is a strong word in the Greek, zeteo. It, it's a, it means to put strong effort into the seeking of a thing. You would you know, go seek and find. Luke 19, where he talks about that, that's that word. You know, you, you're going to search, you're going to seek. We are to put effort into seeking of peace. And then the fourth command and this word is so interesting, interesting. Pursue it. Pursue it. Pursue peace. The Greek word here is dioko, and it is the word always used to talk about persecution. Literally, the idea of this word uh, is to pursue as in a hunt. Hunt for peace. He doesn't say stumble upon it. You go hunting for it. Go make it happen. Now what's all this talking about? Let's put it together. Here you are, you're in the world and you're around unbelievers and you face threats and you suffer and there are insults and there's all this unfair treatment that is coming your way and maybe that treatment is in the community, maybe it's at your workplace, maybe it's in your marriage, maybe there's someone trying to make you look stupid. What's the right approach? Be harmonious, be sympathetic, be brotherly, that is, have brother love. Um, be kind-hearted. Be humble in your spirit. There's, there's, there's the right approach. What about the right answer to them? It's, you don't retaliate. You're ready to forgive. And instead of listening to your own voice or some other voice telling you to fight back, you come under the right authority and you cling to the Word of God and you let it shape your thinking and action and you get control of your mouth and there's no deceit and there are no lies and you turn from evil and you do only what is good and you seek peace even with the ones that want to bring you pain and hurt and you hunt after that peace. And you give great effort for peace. That's what he's saying. That's what it looks like. What Peter is saying is this kind of a flow like this in the Christian's life is the flow of spirit-filled living all throughout Scripture. I believe that is why he picked Psalm 34 and said, look, you be in that home, you be in that workplace, you be in that community as a peacemaking person that looks like this. 
I mean, read, read scripture. You're going to see it. As I reflected on all sorts of different passages, um, it's true. It's everywhere. Where, where you just constantly see, okay, make peace here. Okay, make peace here. In this situation. In this situation. I'm just going to give you a few little examples. Romans 14. You got the issue of the weaker brother and the stronger brother in faith. Things that offend one that don't offend the other and so forth. What do you do? Verse 13. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or stumbling block in a brother's way. Verse 15. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you're no longer walking according to love. Verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Verse 19, so then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. See it? There's this flow all the time. We flow this way. It's what makes us distinctive as Christians. That we make peace and we're looking to make this peace. And I'll tell you, not in the same way that they're trying to do it over there in Israel and over that direction because they're not willing to stand on truth. But our peace flows in this direction. People that stand on truth and that flow it out in trying to make peace with others. Paul, after confronting the Corinthian church and defending his ministry, says this in 2 Corinthians 13, 11, Finally, brethren, rejoice. Be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. I mean, he's always calling for them. to. In fact, in 1 Corinthians, remember there was division, division, division. You're just walking in the flesh and all that stuff. When you get to chapter 13, and it's a chapter on love, but love is just another way of talking about making peace. I'll give you a few more, just a few, but 2 Timothy 2.22. Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Hey, you're going to get around and have fellowship with, with others? First, remove the lust. Secondly, pursue the peace. Get attached to each other in peace. How about James? Remember this one in chapter 3, verse 13. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds and gentleness of wisdom. Verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, and gentle, and so forth. Verse 18. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness, that is the Christian, is sown in peace by those who make peace. This is just Jesus, Matthew, I guess 5, 9, saying, blessed are the peacemakers. Now, what does all this mean? Simply this, that none of us are comfortable in conflict. The Christians are peacemakers. 
And it flows. It all flows in that direction. And the closer we get with each other, the more we seek to remove tension. And that's why Christians can be so different in personality, but you put them in the church seeking Christ like this, and eventually we get like-minded and peacemaking. Removing tension all over the place. It used to exist. And that happens when we let the word of Christ dwell in us as our authority. Why do I say that way? Because every page, every direction you turn is going to have this element in it all throughout Scripture. Passages like Psalm 34 begin to shape you this way. When we let the word of Christ dwell in us as our authority. Paul in Romans 12, so far as it depends upon you, be at what? Peace with one another. Pursue it. Hunt after it. Last point here this morning. Number four, the right accountability. You might say the right activation. I I really kind of went back and forth on both words because they both really talk about what's going on here. But the right accountability is this, that God is watching. God is watching. Verse 12, the reason why Peter brings the word of God on them and really on us is to get our hearts moving, to get us activated, to to bring us motivation. What gets us moving to be all those things in verses 8 through 11? Look at verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now what is Peter saying here? He's saying this, that what ought to motivate us and get us moving is the fact that God is watching. The eyes of the Lord, he says, are toward the righteous. And this is Psalm 34, verses 15 to 16. Two verses rolled into one here. 1 Peter 3.12 There's accountability there. What, What is it that gets us going that God is watching? Now, I do not believe this kind of statement here is a statement to make you afraid of messing up. This is not the, you know, you better watch out. Right? Better not cry and all that stuff, right? That's not this. It's more like the healthy fear a child has when he knows his father is coming home and he had some responsibilities to accomplish, even if he's already done them. Man, I I just sure hope that, um, I hope I did them well, or I hope that mom or dad are going to say, hey, good job. Or notice, or, you know, or let me go out and play, or whatever, I mean, you know, all that stuff. That's this. This is, this is that kind of relationship. Healthy fear. But I want you to see that it's more than that. It's more like an encouragement to get moving and keep going. Not just a fear to not disappoint. See, how do you know that? Look at the text and I'll show you here as we we close this up. The eyes of the Lord, His watching eyes 
are for this reason. Will you see it? In his ears attend to their prayer. God watches us, not so that he might catch us and go, Aha! You didn't do it. I found you out. No. He watches us and hears us so that he might answer our prayer. It's not something to catch us in. It's something to care for us in. He watches us for care. This is the... The elder who's the father of elders who are the fathers of the flock, who look over the flock to care for the flock. In other words, the eyes of the Lord in this text are not for judgment, they're for blessing, for caretaking. And I'll tell you the Old Testament talks about the eyes of the Lord all over the place. Psalm fifteen, verse three, Proverbs five, twenty one. Or Second or Chronicles 16.9, listen to this one. For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. See that? And by the way, the, the, the word for prayers means supplication, making requests for needs. He is looking. He's watching. To hear... You just make any requests. He wants you to. Just pray. Pray for it. Look at the other phrase, though, face of the Lord. By the way, all over in the, New, in the Old Testament, the eyes of the Lord are, are rarely ever connected to judgment. But face of the Lord... Always connected to judgment. His face is against those who do evil. And then, so so if we put the picture together here, it goes like this. God is watching his own, the true believers, the ones in the world, the ones getting abused by unbelievers. He is watching them to answer their prayers. His eyes are constantly on us to answer our prayers, to respond to them. And so what Peter is saying is you don't have to live life taking matters into your own hands and trying to even up the score when you are unfairly treated. God watches and he answers your prayers. He knows them. He wants to hear them. So pray. Keep praying. You don't need to retaliate. He will take care of you in all of that. And he'll put you in a place where you live the good life. When the Bible talks about God becoming angry, it talks about the face of the Lord, like in Genesis 19.13, where it said the face of the Lord was against Sodom and Gomorrah. And that's why Lot was being rescued. And I believe that why he says this again is so we can have great confidence. But let me, let me tell you this. The opposite is true too. If you are bent to stay in that retaliation mode, the face of the Lord is against you. And you won't win.
All right. Let me conclude. Let's conclude. What kind of lessons do we take away? Let me give you a few lessons here as we close this up on this whole section. First, the great need to be aware of the difference between the world's good life and the good life that Jesus gives. We need to be clear about that. Keep working to have distinctions in your mind between the two. Secondly, second lesson to take away is the great need to be aware of what you love. In chapter 3, verse 10, Peter says, The one who desires life to love and see good days. In 1 John 2, 15 and 17, What you love is a mark of who you are. Love for the world will not be able to handle it when you are unfairly treated. So what you love is something you should need to be need to pay attention to. What is your love connected to? Thirdly, make your greatest battle your mouth. Make your greatest battle your mouth. You might be dealing with feelings of retaliation, but if you make your great battle your mouth, you can deal with those feelings of retaliation in quietness with the word with a, another brother or sister in terms of just accountability that's there and then fourth what do I get from all this I better know the word right know the word make a consistent effort to be in the word and let the word be in you more Bible. That should be your theme. More Bible. How do I handle this? More Bible. See, why say all of that? I'll tell you, because the world is after you. Now, that's why Peter says what he says in verses 13 and 14. Listen to this as we end. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? Who can take that away from you? Verse 14, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you're blessed. And do not fear their intimidation. Do not be troubled. You don't have to be afraid of them. If you live this way, seeking this seeking all that's good in life from what Peter spoke of. Man, um, oh, that we would be a people that would reflect all of that and as a church, encourage each other that way. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Christ. Your word is rich and we want it to just dwell in us in that rich way. And uh, I pray, Father, that we would not be a people of retaliation at all, that we would just be a forgiving people, peacemaking people, so different than the world. And I pray, Lord, that you would um, show us the things that we need to give attention to. We pray for the ministry of the Holy Spirit to apply the word to us in just those areas so that we might be able to love others in a uniquely born-again way, we pray in Jesus' name.